I was reading some uh, Sheldon Van Offing yesterday afternoon, thinking I might have an illustration for today. It didn't, it didn't work out, but he had shared letters with C.S. Lewis, and one of the quotes from one of those was that uh, something about Christians never say goodbye. I can't remember the context, but we have minor departures from each other, but we've sort of got a, an eternity to look forward to with each other, so there's ultimately no real goodbyes. Friday night, yesterday, two nights ago, two nights ago, I was uh, very aware that it was Memorial Weekend. It's the official shift, you know, from toward the end of the school year to summer. So I barbecued burgers on the grill, and uh, we went to the Dairy Queen later that night because we wanted to mark, you know, the end of one season and the beginning of summer, and that was a great, tasty way to do it. <clears throat> to transition tastefully from the school year or the spring into the summer. Uh, we're talking about transitions this morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be around a number of verses, frankly, but the only place I'll spend much time is in Ecclesiastes 3. Here at the beginning, uh, the birds wrote a song off the lyrics here in, uh, in Ecclesiastes I love from the 60s. Uh, but Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, Solomon talks about the fact that time is marked, that our lifetimes are marked by a variety of times and seasons, that they're not all the same, but there's variety as we go through our lives. So Solomon there wrote, there is an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. There's a time to give birth and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. There's a time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war and a time for peace. So Solomon, that wisest of men, he sort of looks over his life, he looks over the lives of others, and he says, life is filled with seasons and time. They're not all the same. And that we'll find that we move from one season or time of life into another. And though Solomon doesn't say it here, the truth is also that not only do we have these Varieties of times and seasons, but we have the transitional times that sow one to the other. You know, we have times when we transition from spring to summer, or one thing to another. And that's what we're focusing on this morning. Our, our lives, our times, our seasons are marked by these junctures and these transitions between one state to another. So, I was thinking about our church in this life. 
We're in a season right now in which many of us are transitioning from one season to another, at least for students, young students, for instance, we're moving from school to summer. Some, some students are also moving from one phase of school to another. Uh, some graduates are moving from school to the job market. Some of us are moving from one job to another. Some of us are moving from one city to another. Engaged couples moving from lives of independence to marriage. That's a big change. Young couples moving from just married to parenthood. Those that are still dealing with the loss of family members or friends. Lots of transition, lots of seasons and times in life. Sometimes we choose the seasons and the times, the transitions that we go through. And sometimes they choose us. And sometimes these seasons and their transitions are exactly what we hoped for. You know, and, and the other side is sometimes they're all that we, we dreaded. We get some of both through life. So how do we transition from one season of life to another? How do we do that intentionally? How do we do that well? I want to offer some suggestions this morning about making the transition from one season of life to another. And in saying this, these points will not be equally applicable to everyone here. You may feel like right now you're not even in a transition. Life's going merrily along in whatever stage or stage it is. That's fine. If that's you, put this on the shelf and bring it down later when you need it or someone else needs it. And on the things that do apply, if you find yourself in transition, some of these will apply to you now and some won't. By the way, my list is short. If you did your own list, you'd come up with some other things too. But hopefully this starts the thinking process as we go from one phase of life to another. Three areas I want to talk about. The first is put the past to rest. Put the past to rest. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to move from one season to another to transition because we're hanging on to the past. You can't move forward and you can't move successfully from one season or time to another unless we put the past to rest. Here's a few ways to go about that. The first in my mind is this. Um, all of us, as we look back, you might feel like there's the good, the bad, and the ugly in the season or the time of life you're leaving. But as you look back, and as we're thinking about putting the past behind us, putting it on the shelf, one of the ways to do that successfully is to look back and to give thanks. To consciously look back over this season of life and then thank God for the ways He's blessed you in this. Give thanks. David, when he looked back over his life in 2 Samuel 22.50, this is the same basically as Psalm 18, he said, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, or Yahweh, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. This psalm in 2 Samuel, or Psalm 18, it recounts the ways God delivered him. David had a hard life. You know, we, we see David sort of as the best of the king, but his life was filled with turmoil and trouble. But when he's looking back, he looks back and he gives thanks to God for all the ways God had blessed him and delivered him. Giving thanks. Psalm 107 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Five times in this psalm. Giving thanks. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul writes, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Over 150 times in the Scriptures we're commanded to give thanks. 
And giving thanks is a great way of life. But when you're thinking about transitioning from one stage of life to another, giving thanks helps you look back, count up your blessings, remember the ways God has served you and blessed you, provided for you. It's a great way to put that period of life to rest. And it also changes, let's assume that there's some some uh, discouraging elements in that season of life you're leaving. It helps you look back with gratitude instead of discouragement. It's a great way to end that season by seeing it as thankful instead of discouraged or dismayed. I'm thankful for what God did instead of being discouraged. So we're giving thanks in all the ways we can. Another thing we need to do is to say goodbye. This might sound like a no-brainer. Saying goodbye is important if someone something, some place in your life has been significant. And it's, this is a good way to put it on the shelf, to put the past behind you. In Acts 20, Paul has met up with the leaders, the elders of Ephesus, and he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he knows he won't see them again. And he's very intentional, not only about commending them to God and to the word of His grace and warning them about things to come in the future, but he's saying his goodbyes. He's very intentional about saying his goodbyes. Just like we want to be this morning with Stephen Grace. If someone, someplace, sometime, something in your life, as you shift the seasons or the times, if you don't need to say goodbye, this is probably an indictment on the kind of shallow investment you've had with others, perhaps. Goodbye recognizes the value of someone that's been in our lives. Goodbye, say you were important. We were glad we knew you. Thank you. It formalizes their value when we say goodbye. If we can take off with no goodbyes, it probably means we've led a very shallow life in whatever that season is. So, leaving school, church, job, neighborhood, tell those folks you've been plugged in with goodbye. Thank them for their investment in your life. <clears throat> the last thing here. This would not apply in all cases for sure, but in some it does in spades, and that is to grieve or to recognize the loss that you're experiencing in the transition from one stage or season in life to another. Back at verse 4 in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said that there's a time to weep, there's a time to mourn. There are times to weep and times to mourn. And back in Acts 20, when Paul had said his goodbyes, he told these guys, guys, I'll never see your face again. I know what God's call is on my life. I'm going to be arrested. I know what's facing me in Jerusalem and beyond. I'll never see you again. And it says in verse 36, when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. These guys... These guys had served with Paul for at least a couple of years in Ephesus because he spent a large amount of time in this city. And so when he says, guys, I'm taking off and I won't see you again, this is a huge loss for them. And they're feeling it. And they don't cover up their tears. They weep aloud or loudly. They're grieving. For whatever reason in the West, we tend to be embarrassed of crying and of grieving. You don't see this in the Middle East and you don't see it in the Scriptures. When some, someone suffered loss, they wept. And they grieved. And for us, 
if you're in one of those transitions where you're feeling the loss, grief is a way of, of acknowledging the value of the thing you're losing, or losing the benefit of anyway. Maybe the face-to-face time with someone else. Grieving is a way of acknowledging the value that you're really losing. And that's a great help in putting that on the shelf. It's hard to get ready for the future if we've got these lingering issues because we haven't grieved about these things in the past. Real losses. Even if we're moving on to something great, they're still real loss. You know, even at weddings, you see people cry a lot. And you know, part of that's because they're really happy. And part of that's because there's real loss. Because you're really not the same family anymore and you really don't have the same relationships anymore. And for brides and grooms, it's a huge gain, but it's, it's a loss, too. It's both. So if you're in one of those transitions, those seasonal changes, grieving could be one of those elements that you need to take into account to put the past behind you appropriately in a healthy way. So, given thanks, we thank God for what He's done in the past, we've said our goodbyes, We've grieved if that's appropriate for whatever that change is in our life. It's turned to time to turn from where we've been to where we're going and to face forward. That would be the second thing. To face forward. To intentionally turn from the past, whatever that season of life was. Put it behind us. Put it on the shelf. And to face forward. And as you face forward, <clears throat> I want to suggest two things to do. The first is this. It's to refuse anxiety and fear and to trust God. To refuse anxiety and fear and to trust God. You know, uh, as humans, we tend to fear almost everything. Almost any change in life. Where am I going to move? What will I eat? What? Everything. We face the future and our temptation is to fear. Fear the unknown. We might have, we might figure everything's going to be great and it will still be eaten away inside by fear and anxiety and worry. And so the first thing, as you intentionally face forward, tell yourself, I'm going to refuse to worry. I'm going to refuse those temptations to fear. And I'm going to choose volitionally, consciously with my mind to trust God instead. I think this area, this thing about anxiety and fear, I think it's one of the ways Christians sin day in and day out and think it's okay. And it's not. The scriptures command those who know Christ to refuse fear and worry. We're commanded to. And yet we'll we'll sin. We'll we'll commit ourselves to worry and fear all the time, and we say that's being responsible. I'm being thoughtful. No. It's deficient. It's sin. It falls short of the mark. Because we're acting like we don't belong to God. We don't know who He is, we don't know His character, or we don't know His promises. And so as we face forward with whatever those changes are, tell yourself consciously, you've got to decide this in your head, I refuse to entertain fear and worry. Let me give you an example of a guy that was enjoying, this was enjoying on. In Joshua chapter 1, Moses has died. And Moses has been the leader of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, right? Moses is the guy that called down fire from heaven. And the Jews walked out of Egypt. Slaves walked out free, right? This is Moses. And he died. And Joshua's going to take over. He's going to be the leader. 
And so God has a little conversation with Joshua. And he says in verse 6 of Joshua 1, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers. Verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Gets down to verse 9. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, your God is with you wherever you go. Now why do you think God tells Joshua three times be strong and courageous? Because he's tempted not to be, right? Now think about the guy this is being spoken to. Just put this in context. I'm seeing Billy, a young soldier here today. Think of this guy. Joshua was one of only two of the twelve spies who went into the land of promise, saw the fortified cities and the giants, and comes back and tells Israel, we are well able to take this land. God shall, I can't remember the phrase, but God will put them into our hand. We'll take them down. One of only two. These were the choice guys out of the nation of Israel. Only two out of twelve said we can do this. Joshua was one of them. Joshua commanded the armies of Israel in their first outing with Amalek. Joshua was leading the charge. Joshua was the only guy with Moses on the mountain in smoke and fire when God gave him the law. So you get the picture. This guy is a seasoned veteran. He's been around the block. He's done things no one else in the, on the planet had done. This is the guy that God says three times, be strong and courageous. Because he's going through this significant transition. Up to this point, he's been Moses' helper. And now Moses is gone. And he's moving from second fiddle to first chair. And everything's changing in his mind. And this seasoned veteran, this guy who's been on the fiery mountain, who's led the charge against foreign armies, this guy, God is saying, Joshua, be strong and be courageous. And you know what? If this seasoned veteran, if this war-hardened leader needed to hear, be strong and courageous, there's a pretty good chance when we go through transitions in life, we do too. We have to consciously refuse angst and worry and say, God, I'm trusting you. We've got to take the admonition of Joshua and apply that to ourselves. You know, he was talking about Exodus and been talk, uh, teaching through Genesis recently. You know, Tolkien, when he was uh, writing the little book, The Hobbit, you know, it's a cute story, it's a kid's story, sort of. But as he's describing one scene, I think it's when Bilbo's maybe in the uh, caves and it's dark and he's, he's uh, struggling to find a way out. He says something like, you know, and you're reading this story in the safety of your armchair and you think everything's okay. But you're not in the story. And when we read the stories of Exodus and Joshua, we know the end of the story. And we're sitting in our comfy chairs. And we're reading about Israel there trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And what are we saying? Get over it. We know God's going to come through. They, they didn't. They didn't know what that was going to look like. Or when the food runs out and they're starting to complain to Moses and we're like, get a clue, man. You know God's going to take care. He's promised to get you there. He's got to feed you, right? So we look in these stories and we say, those, those knuckleheads, why didn't they trust? Why didn't they believe? But you know, when it's us faced with our situations, it's an entirely different thing, isn't it? 
what do we do? We fall in the holes of angst and worry and fear. We act like we have no God. Or we act like the God we have is impotent or doesn't care. Of course, all of which argues against God's character and His nature and His promises. When you get to the New Testament, you see Jesus sort of saying the same thing. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. I won't read all of it, but basically He says about what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what will we wear. That is, I'm looking at the future. And I'm filled with things and worry. And I'm thinking, how is this going to happen? What will this look like? And Jesus says the Gentiles eagerly seek for all these. That means the guys who don't know God and have no God, that's what they're worried and fearful about. But he says to those who know Him, you put God in His things first, and I'll take care of all those other things. Just like Joshua. I'll be with you. Be strong and courageous. You, you look to me. You take care of my things. I'll take care of all those other things. You don't worry about that. That's what we're supposed to do. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 say the same thing. Worry about nothing. Now, if you can tell me what that doesn't cover, be anxious for nothing. What does that not cover? When you're thinking about your future, what's coming, what's around the bed, the job, the, the marriage, the kids, financial provision, whatever it is, you tell me if that's not covered by Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. We can say be fearful about nothing. As we face forward, we've got to intentionally tell ourselves we're not going to live and act like Gentiles who don't know God. We're going to act like we know God, like we belong to a God who loves us and has demonstrated that and has given us promises about our welfare and our future. So refuse worry, refuse fear, and trust God and His promises. That's the first thing in facing forward. The second thing is this. Make your plans for the future, but hold them lightly. Make your plans for the future, but hold them lightly. Steve had a plan two years ago, a year, two years ago, seminary after that. You know, it's, it's actually happening. You know, this doesn't happen this, uh, very often, necessarily. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And that means something like this. I look down the road and I say, that's where I'm going. But as I go along, one foot goes... A little different direction, and then my next step goes a little different direction. And at the end of the day, I end up someplace entirely different than I thought I was going. I planned my way, but God directed my steps. Little by little, He got me exactly where He wanted. We should make plans. You read a book like Proverbs in the Old Testament, it's high on making the kind of plans we're able to, being wise and being true. One proverb says that the wise man sees trouble coming and hides himself. You know, Proverbs enjoins us to save things, to put up savings for the day when we don't have an income coming in. It tells the wealthy landowners to take care of those sheep because you don't know when these other income lines are going to fail. So it talks about making wise plans in the way we can, but holding them lightly because we don't know where things are going to go. So as we face forward, we are making the plans tentatively that we can and we should, but we hold them lightly because we don't know how things are going to turn out. In James 4, verses 13 through 15, a fairly well-known passage on a similar theme, James says, a very practical guy, of course, says, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business, make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor 
that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James says, you don't have the substance to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow or next year. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You know, it used to be common when people would write letters to say, DV, Lord willing. You know, see you next year, Lord willing. This was simply an acknowledgement that we didn't hold the future in our certain grasp. That we could hope for a thing, we could plan for a thing, but that didn't mean it was going to happen. So we would say, Lord willing, this is what we'll do. And it was an acknowledgement that we were going to make our plans, but we couldn't be sure what that was going to turn into. We couldn't be sure where those were going to go. So Lord willing, we're making our plans, and we're submitting those to Christ, knowing that most of those probably are going to change along the way. So as we face forward, we're refusing fear, and we're making the plans we're capable of. I want to wind down on the third point by saying this. Uh, in the moment of your transition or in the moment in which you're experiencing some significant change of life, uh, the future, what you're moving to, or the past, what you're losing, it seems like everything. Um, you lose a loved one. That may be all you can think of. Uh, if you're waiting to get married, getting married is probably all that's on your mind. But all of our seasons of life, all of our times and seasons, we need to bring some perspective to those by seeing how they fit in a larger context. And the first of those is this. Psalm 31, verse 14 says, As for me, I trust in you, O Lord, this is in the face of persecution and of threats. As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Someone's threatening me. I feel threatened by some outside force. I'm consoled because I say, Lord, whatever they plan against me, they're trying to take me down or move me or whatever, Lord, I know that my times are in your hand. They can't take me down on their own. My times are in your hand. Lord, ultimately, you're the one who controls the times and the seasons of my life. Not those who oppose me and not even me myself. My times, David said, are in your hands. And we need to understand that our times and seasons are not accidents. That they are in God's hand, under His control. An omnipotent God causes or allows all things. Nothing can happen in this universe if God doesn't cause it or allow it. And if you're a believer, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have God's sovereign, eternal promise that He'll take all the things of life, whatever He causes or allows, and He allows lots of stuff that we wouldn't say is inherently good. And He says He promises to turn that around for our good. My times are in your hands, Lord. My seasons and these changes, welcome or not, planned for or not, not a surprise to God. Our times are in God's hand. Psalm 139, David talking about his existence in his mother's womb and God's thoughts of him even then says, Your eyes have seen my informed substance. In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God has ordained the days of our lives and the seasons and the times of life we go through. They are ordained by God. 
So first, when we think about the little changes and transitions, they, even if they don't seem little at the time, if they seem huge, all-consuming, in the big scope of things, God says He has our times in His hand and He has sovereignly ordained the elements of our life. There's no surprises to God. He's not caught surprised, unawares about what's going on. He's caused it or He's allowed it. He's sovereignly in control of all of those things. That's the first thing. The second thing is related to life and death. This is Memorial Weekend, and this is a weekend which we typically pay respect to those primarily who have served us and our country in the military. And also it's become, in a sense, an enlarged holiday because we end up basically visiting and think graves, cemeteries, thinking about those friends and relatives who've already passed from this life to the next. And if we don't deal with the fact that all of the seasons and transitions of our life here are under this overarching uh, transition that faces all of us related to life and death, we're going to come up short in the way we see these things. <clears throat> First, uh, there is no more important transition for any human being on this earth. In fact, all of the transitions fade to almost insignificance compared to this one, and it is this, the transition from spiritual death to spiritual life is all-important, all-consuming, puts everything else in perspective. Paul said in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, God rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, all of us here, if we have life on this earth, we are descendants of Adam and Eve, our parents, of our fallen parents. And we share their fallen nature. We are born separated from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're born separated from God. We can't spiritually interact with God, have this vital relationship. We're not capable of it by birth. And if we live through this life, and we go through all the seasons and the transitions of life, and all the good things God affords us, and we die without Christ, that separation continues forever. It never changes. You could live the worst life on earth. That is, the worst poverty, the worst physical uh, maladies, the worst marriage, whatever. And I go to, and go to heaven, and you'd say, I'm blessed. You could enjoy the wealth of the world for a thousand years, and die separated from Christ, and wonder, what was I thinking? No other transition, nothing, remotely compares to this one, the transition from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. Everything else, that'll take care of itself. The transition from death to life is one that counts. If you don't know Christ, if you died today and can't say 100% certain and I'm going to heaven, this is the transition you need. All the others are insignificant. And the Lord makes it easy. He paid for our sins on the cross. He rose for our justification. John's Gospel is written to tell people how to be saved, how to transition from spiritual death to spiritual life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept His payment for you. In the end, that's the only transition that matters. Everything else, second fiddle at best. Now, if you've made that transition, let me suggest this. We get really caught up 
you know, what's going on, and that's natural because we're invested and we're doing all the things we know to do, that's natural. But uh, we've got to think, and we're, we're called to live with a future transition or translation in mind. And this future translation should inform everything else that's going on for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and they're concerned because they've been told that Christ is going to return for His saints, for His holy ones. Their concern is, well, my believing mother or my friend that's a Christian died, and so they're not here when Christ comes back and takes us to Himself. Paul's writing to clear up their confusion. And he says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up. By the way, the Latin caught up is what we say raptured. Up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The early church lived with the belief that Christ could return at any time and call them home. You read the early chapter of Acts, I think it's Acts 4, Peter tells the Jews, repent, why? Because Christ will return and bring refreshing in His presence. This would have been the kingdom. Peter thought He could come at any time. Paul did too. So Paul enjoined the Thessalonians to live with the understanding not just that their, their saved friends and relatives who had died wouldn't miss this event, because Paul said they'd actually rise first, but he enjoined the early church. In fact, if you read 1 Thessalonians, it's all about this. It's all over the place. They were enjoined to live with Christ's return in view, with His call, with His any moment call. If you get to 2 Peter 3, the context is a little different. Peter's talking about the end of the world that's going to be burned up. And so he says, uh, since these things are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Now, it's not as if Christians could make it come any faster but Peter's attitude was, we're looking for it. We're living with the expectation of Christ's return and of being with Him. And that informs everything else that's going on. That informs the way we see all our transitions and all our seasons are informed by the fact that we understand that Christ's call is coming. John, I think it's 15, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll return. I'll bring you back where I am. I think it's in 1 Peter 1. Uh, Peter says, Fix your hope completely on Christ and the grace that's to be to re- that will be revealed at His return when He takes us to Himself. All of this just to say, we can't live with our heads buried in the sand here about what's just going on now. We are called to see our seasons in life as underneath this umbrella which is Christ could return for His church at any time. And I'm to live in such a way that whenever He comes, I'll be glad. And I'll be ready. And that helps me put these other things in perspective. My life here, it lasts for a little while. But the passage earlier, it's like a vapor. It doesn't last long. I'm 53. It's gone fast. I can imagine I'll be 83 soon or whatever if I last that long. Uh, it goes by fast, much faster than we think when we're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. Yeah. It just keeps rolling. 
And so as Christians, as those who know that Christ has given a promise that he's going to receive us to himself, we're supposed to live informed by that knowledge. Thinking about Christ's return. That's supposed to inform everything we do in our outlook. We see ourselves sort of as tenants. Not as landowners here. We're just here for a little while and we make those decisions in light of Christ's future call to us. I'll close with this verse. Bill Dylan read this verse last week uh, on the front end of open worship. And uh, I smiled to myself because I'd already had it recorded here for this week's teaching. Uh, this really helps put things in perspective. Paul's talking about his relationship with Christ and he's talking about the resurrection. The fullness, if you will, of experiencing uh, salvation in Christ in the resurrection of his body. And he says at verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, not that I've already obtained it. I haven't already become perfect. I'm not already all that I will be or should be. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that's putting the past behind us, and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's facing forward. I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul looks at his life, thinks about his future, promises God to make to him, and he says, I'm doing one thing. I'm putting the past behind me. I'm forgetting what lies behind me. And I'm facing forward. I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. And I'm pressing on towards Christ. I'm pressing on towards Christ, forgetting what's behind, reaching forward what lies ahead. Nothing short of Christ is my ultimate goal and my reunion or union with Him. So, in your transitions, either this summer, this weekend, this year, next year, put the past behind you. Put it to rest. Give thanks. Put it in good perspective. Say your goodbyes. Grieve when you need to. Face forward and refuse to worry when you do so. And trust yourself to God and His promises. Make your plans, but hold them lightly, knowing most of them are probably going to be changed. And remember that ultimately all these seasons, all these times of life, ultimately are lived under this promise that we're going to live and roll with Christ forever. And we don't know when that's going to start. And so we live in all of our seasons and all of our transitions in light of that future hope. So we're forgetting what lies behind. We're reaching forward to what lies ahead. We're pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. That's a verse you can go life on. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by how uncertain life is from our perspective. And uh, or the best of our plans often end up uh, yielding nothing. And oftentimes it's those things that were unlooked for that end up being the best blessing. Lord, thank you that you're ultimately sovereign and in control of everything that's going on in our life and all that lays before us. And Lord, help us to live and to act and to choose to think as those who know you, who know an omnipotent and loving God who's paid the price for our redemption in the death and resurrection of your only begotten Son, 
And that, Lord, having given us Christ, you wouldn't withhold any good thing. And so, Lord, help us live with confidence. Help us to refuse fear as unworthy of those who have been called by your name. And help us with Paul and with that example to boldly press forward, to look forward, to press on towards Christ, towards his call, towards that ultimate reunion, Lord, we have with you when mortality becomes immortality, when death is swallowed up by life. Lord, when we go from seeing you in the scriptures and by your spirit only to seeing you face to face. And Lord, though our times and our days and our seasons here are so brief, vaporous, James says, thanks that you filled them with so much of yourself and so many of your rich blessings. And we just say, thank you again for being our God. Thank you for the seasons of life you give us. Thank you for the certain hope and reward we share with Christ. In his name, amen.